Welcome to FIC Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence FIC Research Team. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to this month's Emerging Market Lens and Look Through Podcast. I am your host, Damian Sassauer, and today we are joined by Mr. Johnny Golden, Head of Emerging Market Strategy, J.P. Morgan London. A real privilege to have you here, Johnny. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me. So let's begin. I mean, you know, crack right into it. Can you give us a sense of where you believe we are currently in the investment cycle. I mean, what are your thoughts on economic growth and inflation in this post-pandemic world? And in terms of beta regime, I mean, do you feel the global recovery is more early or late stage? And what's the implication on positioning across emerging market countries and sectors alike? Yeah, so it's a, an interesting point here. I think for some asset classes, at least, asset prices do look quite late cycle, maybe in, in the US, in, in credit and equities. Um, but that hasn't been the case for EM, where, you know, we should remember spreads have not fully recovered from the COVID sell-off and neither has have EM currencies. Um, but asset prices aren't the economy and the global recovery doesn't look late stage yet. There was a point earlier in the year when it looked like vaccination from COVID was some silver bullet for economy. So once you would have that, you'd get enormous pent-up demand boom that would trigger inflation, economies would get back to, to closing output gaps, central banks would have quickly and, and cause what could be quite a short business cycle. But that doesn't look like the case now. Uh, the way the Delta variant has worked is basically dampening near-term activity. And so, in a sense, it's holding back some of that pent-up demand from households and corporates. And many sectors, as we look around, are still not fully open, even the most open economies. Um, in addition to which, large parts of the EM world, for example, are still operating with pandemic restrictions. So when we look at the opening that still happened in EM countries, how much accumulating saving there is globally, indicators such as you know, demand for workers, uh, it still looks like we're, we're early-ish in this cycle at the moment. Interesting. Well, look, I mean, we can't talk about emerging markets without looking at the Fed and specifically the U.S. Treasury yield curve. I mean, yields have obviously now consolidated at lower levels, although they are starting to climb here. But many have capitulated on those, you know, beginning of the year calls for, you know, 10 year to, you know, kind of hit 175 and keep going. Right. So I'm curious, you know, given the impact of, U- of U.S. Treasury yields on, you know, emerging market local debt and credit alike, what are your thoughts on where U.S. yields are headed here? And, you know, do you think there's, you know, potential for upcoming Treasury issuance to crowd out capital flows to EM local? I mean, what must emerging market economies do to attract foreign inflows? Yeah, so the house view here on 10-year Treasuries is that they will be about 40 basis points higher by, by the end of the year. Um, but given the activity slowdown we've seen in the U.S. over the summer and the fact that the Fed has become, you know, more balanced, it looks like there's been narrow paths of debate for actions from the Fed from now until the end of the year um, with a tech announcement in November or December. Um, you know, when you put all that together, I don't get a sense that there's too much pressure on, on U.S. rates in the near term anyway by, by end of year. Could be, but but right here it doesn't feel like it. Um, overall, 
you know, taking a step back, I think EM is in a better place to withstand this Fed taper. Um, first is due to the Fed, and this is extremely well telegraphed. You know, we will have been debating this, discussing it for nine months or so um, by the time it's actually announced. Um, but more importantly on the EM side, I think if we look at EM fundamentals, they're clearly in a different place to where they were uh, in very boomy conditions in 2013 and in the taper tantrum. Um, external imbalances are, are much better uh, for the, the more fragile EM. Um, and you can see that the, the flip side of that is the inflow environment, which up to 2013, you'd seen this enormous flow of capital into emerging markets, which, you know, right here, right now, we've just not seen almost for a decade. Um, and the reason why that's important is when you, when you get into a taper, the market asks itself who's benefited most from this liquidity. And in 2013, EM was quite clearly uh, close to the top of the list, but right now it just doesn't feel like that. Uh, and, and part of that has meant that valuation currencies, for example, in rates, they're much better now than they were in, in 2013. Um, coming to the, the last bit of your question, what should EM do to attract foreign inflows? Well, there's the difficult thing, you know, make your governments better, improve your economies, structural reforms, etc. Um, you know, it's been a while since we've seen that across all of EM. Uh, I think the more immediate lever is to make carry compensation better. And, and on that, thankfully, EM central banks have started that process well before the Fed will get going by, by hiking rates. No, I mean, that's exactly right, and we agree with you completely. I mean, the tightening cycle is underway. We, ha we are seeing a bit of a bigger inflation impulse in developing markets, and we are seeing central banks react to that, right? Brazil, Mexico, Russia, South Africa, and so forth. I mean, you know, my question for you is, is this, is this become a market where we're trying to get out in front of, you know, central banks and try to, you know, pick those currencies where we think central banks are most likely to hike? I mean, is that really the approach we should be taking, one of sort of, you know, um, you know, picking your spots? Or do we think that this massive unwind of reflation trades is, um, is overdone? And we're going to see, you know, I mean, I wouldn't say inflation is transitory, but yeah, you know, the inflation impulse is going to be a bit greater, and so we need to kind of track that. I mean, what should we be, you know, basically how do you think, you know, this hawkish policy tilt is going to affect investors' capital allocation decisions? I mean, is this a boost to the value proposition for going local in EM, or do you, do you consider it to be a concern? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I mean, I think on that one, this tightening is going to make EM look more attractive, and, and two reasons for that, really. One is, you know, when we look at it, EM central banks are being somewhat proactive and are helping to re restore their credibility. You know, if you want to think about this, think about the counterfactual, if they were doing what developed market central banks are doing, which is watching a massive rise in inflation and really doing little about it and saying it would be transitory. I think if you saw that in EM right now, you'd see much weaker currencies, steeper curves potentially. Um, so the fact that you're not seeing that is, is something to do with that, them being proactive. Um, and also carry matters. Uh, I mean, it's a fixed income asset class. Earlier in the year, we looked at, you know, BRL with carry of 2%. Not that expensive to short it. Our economists think by early next year, we'll have a policy rate at 9%. So uh, markets already 
pricing that and more. And so being short currencies at those kinds of levels start to, to be meaningful. Um, so I think for those reasons, it, it is this tightening cycle is going to make it more attractive. Um, we generally find real yields matter for EM currencies, and EM is going some way to doing that um, versus uh, developed markets as well. Uh, and if you look in bond space, actually, uh, EM bond real yields are the highest that they have been versus developed market bond real yields. So these kinds of things, they may not matter right here every day, but they are going to start matter. And I think potentially if you start to get inflation topping out in EM, uh, they'll start to matter even more. Uh, I completely agree, Johnny. I mean, the carry environment is definitely much better than it has been in some time for emerging markets and for going local. But, you know, obviously when you go local, it's not about only about carry. It's about that impact of the currency. And so we can't talk about, about that without talking about the greenback, you know. And look, I mean, you know, some are calling that, you know, some are saying that, you know, we've seen peak bearishness on U.S. growth. Delta's peaked. You know, there's fiscal stimulus coming. I mean, I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are on EM currencies versus the greenback, I mean, do we have potential for, for them to, you know, kind of rally through the end of the year? I mean, obviously, the seasonal environment has never been, <laughs> you know, going into uh, Q3 has never been great. But, you know, I'm curious on your thoughts, you know, what's it going to take for EM currencies to really regain their footing versus the U.S. dollar? Yeah, so some, of it, some conditions look quite good for EM currencies at the moment with, as you say, probably concerns around Delta variant. Or, or understanding that it's going to mean a more endemic COVID, which is slower growth pace, maybe less pressure on the Fed uh, in, in the near term should, should be positive. Um, but we're not quite there yet, I think, for, for EM currencies really to break out what, what has just been a, quite a noisy range for most of this year. We are seeing growth being downgraded at the moment in emerging markets. China is probably leading uh, that process for us. Uh, and I think to think of a sort of downtrending growth forecast and uncertainty around China, it just doesn't feel like it's an environment we're going to see trend uh, EM FX appreciation uh, quite yet. So um, I think for us, it's still likely to see a bit of a volatile range. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I mean, I think the opportunity is more in a relative value approach when you're talking EM currencies. And and look, I mean, from that perspective, you know, let's talk fund flows. Let's talk technicals here. I mean, fund flows into EM credit and equities have improved, yet, you know, as you rightly point out, flows into EM local debt are just, you know, they're just not what they once were. Um, and so, you know, broadly speaking, when you look at these large cross-border capital flows, you know, who are the major players investing in EM local debt today? And going, I guess, looking forward, you know, how do you see the composition of EM investors changing? I mean, do we still see, you know, passive flows from ETFs really at the margin driving, uh, driving valuations? Do we see, you know, active funds getting more involved? Do we see reserve banks, you know, kind of loading up? I mean, what are your, what are your thoughts about the composition of EM investors? Do you see that, um, and how do you see that evolving uh, into the future? Yeah, so when we're looking at the fund flows this year at the moment, actually, I don't think they look too bad. Uh, EM fixed income has had something like 53 billion of inflows year to date. But the interesting thing is, you point out. <laughs> sorry? I'm sorry, I said China government bonds are a lot of that. I'm just laughing to myself, sorry. No, no, you're right. And, and that was probably my next point, is when you look at the composition of that, only 3 billion went to 
typical EM local bond mandate, right? So GBI, yeah. So almost nothing. 28 billion went to hard currency and 20 billion went to China only local bond mandate. So you see this as well in the official, if you look at the other set of data, like non-resident buying of local bond data, almost nothing has gone into GBI EM ex China countries. But Korea and Israel have had 40 billion of foreign investors buying their bonds. And China itself has had over 80 billion. So global investors are buying EM bonds. They're just not buying GBI EM. And they're buying higher quality ones. Interestingly, if you look at the other end, they're also buying frontier markets as well, um, just leaving out that middle. So I think, you know, to your question, we need to think a bit more broadly about what is EM. And also, who are the end investors? Because they they are they are buying, um, but they are buying directly. Uh, they are picking and choosing countries, and, and perhaps you know different investment formats than we have seen necessarily historically. Yeah, no, we agree. We think uh, we'd rather be holding China Yuan and Korean Won than Nigerian Naya, Naira and, and Zambian Kwachif. <laughs> but, um, but yes, no, they're definitely getting the most of the flows and everything in between is kind of lagging. Yeah, no, we see the same thing on our side. I mean, speaking of China, I mean, we've all heard, you know, nominal GDPs overtaken the EU and economic outputs on track to double over the next 15 years, right? But Obviously, recent developments from Evergrande to Huarong to, you know, the crackdown on big tech introduces a new set of known unknowns. And, you know, this is adding to the challenges of investing in Chinese assets. I mean, what are your thoughts? How should EM investors approach China in the current environment? Yeah, so the way we look at China is probably the biggest short-term risk on the horizon that we're focused on, uh, but it's more from the perspective uh, perspective of, of the large slowdown in growth. So our, our economy is only looking at a 0.2% growth pace in Q3. So it's pretty slow. Um, this is mostly due to a series of policy catalysts. So the credit slowdown that we saw in the first half of the year, their the zero tolerance policy to, to COVID, which leads to restrictions. And, and more recently, the corporate policy towards both common prosperity and burden sharing, um, which obviously has led to Chinese equity, for example, uh, being down a lot. But I think we need to distinguish between which part of the Chinese asset complex. Uh, so we are still um, bullish on the local bonds in China, um, which we think in this kind of environment should do quite well, uh, but not on, on China higher corporates at the moment. Although current distress uh, asset price levels, you've got to say that quite a lot is in the price. Uh, and we're not really seeing too much contagion from that. So the way we're looking at that risk is more through the lens of the impact on Chinese growth. Um, it feels like we could be getting towards the bottom in that process and some of the leading indicators are uh, starting to turn up a bit. But I think that, you know, is going to be that key question as we go into the fourth quarter. So, you know, you mentioned it, you know, that kind of divergence between emerging and developed markets. And, and you know, we, we know the stat, you know, per capita incomes declined 20% in EM versus just 10% in DM over the past year. And poverty and unemployment are notably higher in emerging markets. And, and of course, vaccine uptake continues to be challenging, although it's improving in places like Southeast Asia. I mean, I'm curious, do you expect, um, just kind of looking out to the frontier, do you expect EM sovereign restructurings to grow more commonplace? I mean, how are investors approaching some of the opportunities you're seeing in EM credit specifically with regards to 
you know, Belize and Ethiopia, Tunisia, Zambia, et cetera. I mean, and obviously now Argentina with the midterms. So, you know, I'm curious, you know, what can we reasonably expect from some of these countries and how do you think an investor, uh, an EM dollar credit investor should approach it? Yeah, so I think EM sovereign default or restructuring, they have already become more commonplace. And last year was the highest year of EM sovereign default since the early 2000s. Um, I, th- I think that's less about vaccine uptake and, and as you point out, things on, on that side are improving. But we need to remember that EM came into this COVID crisis with the highest ever government debt to GDP levels after a decade of, of increase. And then on top of that, you get COVID-related deficit spending and recessions. And, and so those debt levels have only increased. And, and we've been trying to highlight since the start of the pandemic that you know, it's somewhat inevitable that, that restructions would increase. Um, the the universe of EM sovereign credit is much bigger now and it includes many smaller countries as well. And that just feels like it's, it's part of the, the natural cycle there. Um, I think the key for EM markets overall and the investor approach to this is that most of these countries that are involved, last year we had some large countries, uh, but now we're looking mostly at small and non-systemic countries. And we've listed some of them. So, I think investors are looking actually at these mostly as opportunities to take a view on after having spent many years not being able to really hone their credit skills. Uh, actually, we have some countries which are smaller and, and you know, you can make some alpha in um, rather than it being a problem for the asset class overall. And I think I would, I would probably agree to, the, to that approach as well. Yeah, and I mean, look, I mean, what does that say to the broader EM credit complex, right? I mean, it's grown significantly over the past decade. But, you know, you know, shifting to the technical element, I mean, are you seeing greater depth and liquidity in EM credit markets? I mean, you know, what is the state, in your opinion, of the primary market in EM credit? I mean, do you see it remaining as strong as it is? Do you see um, this improving or deteriorating as, you know, obviously developed market central banks like the Fed begin pumping the brakes? I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, so, I, I mean, without being too dismissive, I, I think people have been concerned about credit market liquidity at least since 2008, probably my entire career. Um, but, I, you know, I, I don't see any real evidence that deteriorated overall. In fact, most of the data seems to point to market turnover overall being relatively constant, but the number of bonds has grown. So liquidity on any specific bond might have declined. Overall, you know, the ability to turn over X amount of risk is still the same. Um, primary markets actually function very well. Uh, so far, we've had about 128 billion of EM sovereign supply this year. We are forecasting just over 200 billion. Um, EM corporate supply is actually running at a record pace so far this year. 380 billion issued in primary, and we're forecasting is to reach 550 in, in growth terms. So it looks like the primary markets are actually, uh, you know, functioning very well, volumes are, are relatively good. Um, in terms of overall global liquidity environment, you know, I think we've already seen the peak in central bank balance sheet expansion. So it's not like we are, are approaching that we've seen it, uh, but this only changes quite slowly over the next year or so. so I'm not really expecting to see a change in the EM market liquidity environment, uh, certainly at the moment. You know, Johnny, before I lose you, I mean, we're, we're kind of 
run over here. I just I just have to ask you, you know, and I ask a lot of our, our, our guests on, on this podcast, you know, I mean, the COVID shock, really, unlike anything we have ever witnessed in the modern era of capital markets, right? And, you know, for me, you know, what have I learned from it? You know, what didn't I see coming from this? It, for me, the answer is it's really the, the innovativeness uh, of, of central banks to stimulate economies, you know, you know, in lieu of everything that's gone on. But I'm wondering from your perspective, you know, what really surprised you? And, and I wonder if you could touch on, you know, what, you know, sort of vulnerabilities that you didn't see coming that were exposed by this episode. You know, what have you learned from the last, you know, call it year to year and a half since COVID struck? I'm, I'm just, I'm curious to hear your unfiltered opinion there. Yeah, so, you know, when I try and look back at it, I, I don't see too many new EM vulnerabilities that we exposed. I think it was more just a reminder that when you're investing in emerging markets, you are investing in emerging markets. And so when developed market governments ramp up their spending and central banks financing it, EM just can't do the same. And when, you know, EM countries get into crises, they may change their governments in ways that are less market-friendly, and it may take EM longer to get vaccines, etc., and things like that. Ultimately, for me, if I tie that, you know, I think ultimately there, there needs to be enough risk cream. We know all of that, but, you know, there are periods when the market can overlook it. I think we need to make sure there's enough risk premium for that, as well as for the things that we don't know. And that certainly COVID falls into that, in that bucket. Um, but for me, that, that's probably the best lesson so far. Johnny, thank you so very much for sharing your thoughts and views with us here today. And, and thank you to our audience of EM enthusiasts for your time and continued interest. To everyone out there listening, keep well, stay safe, and keep moving forward. Take care. <laughs>